what I was doing throughout several of the years where I was drinking was just kind of like numbing myself to my own potential Mm. and accepting this life that was less than I actually was capable of. And then once you take away that, you know, numbing agent and massive time waster that is alcohol, all these opportunities just kind of blossom in front of you. And it's so beautiful. This is the Nature Untold podcast. And I'm your host, Emily Holland. This podcast is about all kinds of sobriety, addiction, recovery, as they intersect with the outdoor community and industry. Welcome to the show. This podcast is sponsored by UST Gear. One of UST's new mottos is don't be outdoorsy, be outdoors. This resonates with me so much because too often we see pretty curated images of people experiencing the outdoors and it all just feels so far away. UST aims to make gear that helps get everyone into the outdoors. We know how healing nature can be here at the Nature Untold podcast. So I'm psyched to work with a brand that believes in that healing power too. Check them out at ustgear.com or on Instagram at ustgear. Now, on to the show. Hi, all you beautiful, beautiful people. Thank you for coming back for episode four. We are in February now, which means it is Black History Month. And in honor of Black History Month, and also in honor of my soberversary that's coming up, on the 16th of February, we are going to be doing a community fundraiser for the Loveland Foundation. Y'all know that I'm a big fan of therapy. I go every two weeks and I often start sentences with something along the lines of, you know, my therapist said this really interesting thing the other day, which I'm sure is super annoying for those people who have to hear that all the time. However, It is an incredibly privileged thing to be able to go to therapy. And I want to totally recognize that not everyone has the same options, right? So the Loveland Foundation, which we'll be doing a fundraiser around, is centered around providing therapy for black women and black girls. And I'm super excited and hopeful that we can get a good chunk of donation over to them this month. So how are we going to do this? We are going to Venmo directly to me. Yes, it is kind of strange, but we are living in strange times. And the reason we're doing directly to me is so that I can donate a full amount with no sort of surcharges or percentages taken off. All the money you donate will go directly to the Loveland Foundation. And that is how it should be. The other thing to note is if we make it to 500 or beyond, I will certainly match $250. I'll put in money regardless if we don't get there, but I will definitely match $250 if we get to 500 or more. So that is pretty exciting. The other cool thing is that anyone who donates any amount, put your Instagram or your email in the Venmo because we're going to be doing a giveaway with UST gear to get some gear over to you guys for donating and thanking you for being part of this community. So there will be some lucky winners from that particular giveaway. So if you want to participate and donate, please Venmo at 
Emily Holland 14. Thanks in advance for participating. And now let's go into the intro. Welcome back to the Nature Untold podcast. I'm your host, Emily Holland. Today on the show, we have Carrie Hoffman. Carrie is an entrepreneur. She's a yoga teacher. She is just an overall badass lady. And I'm so excited for you to hear her story on the podcast today. A little bit of a warning up front. There is a little bit of weird technical stuff that happens through the conversation, but I wanted to keep it in because it's crucial and you can generally understand what she's saying just as a little garbled here and there. So please enjoy our conversation with Carrie Hoffman. Hi, and welcome to Nature Untold. Hi, Carrie. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So we were talking before um, we started recording, but um, about where you're at right now physically. So you're sitting in what's going to be your van. Is that right? Yes, I am sitting in my still unfinished um, sprinter van, but it's mostly finished. It's just a project that's kind of on the back burner for now. (laughs) And is this going to be like full van life eventually or what's the goal? Yeah, so my husband and I own a piece of land outside Williams, Arizona, which is close to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. So we have 10 acres here. We have some yurts and a tiny house that we rent out as vacation rentals. And we also use the space for yoga retreats. So that's really fun. And we just happen to also live in our van while we're out here. Um, and the van is still not finished. So we do use it for like van life and road trips as well, which is super fun. And the goal is to actually finish the van next month. And we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm always so impressed with people who are doing vans on their own. I very much am like, I, I would need to buy it like done because I oh, cannot yeah. do any of that. So Me good for too. you guys. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I don't help very much. I'm very lucky to have a partner who's super handy and I just morally support him and take photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to spread the van life love on Instagram and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But uh, like the real van life, not the picture perfect van life. Right. Yeah. Like where all these like edited photos, I mean, come on, that's, that can't be it. That ain't it. No, I mean, all these people with their vans being all white, like, why would you do that? It would get so (laughs) dirty. Ours is not going to be all white. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm always looking at those and they look really pretty, just like all white kitchens, like in houses, beautiful houses look really pretty, but that's just not practical for the life we're living, I think. Right. There's always a reality behind the image. Yes. Well, speaking of realities, um, so I think you just celebrated four years of sobriety recently, right? You're over the four-year hump, right? Yes. I had four years in early August, so that was exciting. Into year five, here we go. It never really ceases to amaze me that each year I've gone through seems to have kind of a different theme Mm. as far as personal growth goes. So not as exciting as like those anniversary present themes. It's more like you, you had a year and you think, okay, I've got this sobriety thing figured out now, you know, like everything's going to be smooth sailing. And then it seems like every year just has a different sort of like 
layer to peel back and look at for me so far. So maybe we can take a step back a a bit here and just kind of talk about the decision to go sober, to, to stop drinking, to stop using drugs. So I'm always interested and fascinated by if it was a moment if it was a slow burn and kind of the, the tipping point, I guess. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the decision to become sober and, and what were the, what were the catalysts for that? Sure. So for me, it was kind of a long time coming, but there also was one moment that you could call a rock bottom or a tipping point. And basically I drank, alcohol for about 11 years from age 18 to 29. And over those last few years, it just became less of like a special occasion party type of drinking and evolved more into like an everyday coping mechanism type of drinking. And I was using other drugs sometimes when I would party and just feeling like I was very caught in this loop of like, alcohol was my way of having fun, but then it would bring with it greater anxiety and hangovers. And that part was terrible. And so to get through the terrible parts of feeling hungover and super anxious the morning after drinking too much, I would, you know, numb myself by like drinking in the morning or, you know, hiding like a shot in my coffee when I went to work or something like that. Um, So that basically just kept building and building over the last year or so of my drinking. And I knew that it was a problem, but I was looking for any other possible solution other than going sober forever. So I would do things like try to take breaks and I would have various degrees of success with that. I read this book called like 40 day sobriety solution or something, I think it was called. (laughs) And the whole concept of this book was how to quit drinking without going to AA. Mm. And then another selling point of this book was that it told you like, you might not have to quit forever, like just do this workbook and it'll help you. And then, so I did that. And the last chapter of the book was kind of like a switch. It was like, okay, so for most of you, you should quit forever. (laughs) (laughs) It tricked you. (laughs) Yeah, it totally tricked me. And it had all these other things at the end of the book, like, okay, if you're going to go back to having a proper relationship with alcohol, don't drink by yourself. Um, Don't drink at home, you know, drink on special occasions only, all these pointers. And I just ignored all of that stuff. And it was very quickly after that. So I went from being actually sober for 40 days to really like having a terrible weekend with a blackout and lots of embarrassing events happen Mm -hmm. and hitting my rock bottom and just knowing that like I had to quit forever. So I just woke up the next morning after a really, really bad night. And I was like, I'm done. I have to be done. I have no choice. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. What do you think it is about um, the idea of quitting drinking or quitting drugs forever? That is so terrifying to the the normal person who imbibes? I think it's the indoctrination in our culture of alcohol being so normal and so necessary to a good time. Mm. Um, We see that in marketing, we see that in media all around us from a young age, and we're very programmed into this mindset of like, this is fun. This is how you relax. This is how you treat yourself. 
And then, you know, on the other side of that, there's this concept of like, but if you take it too far, you're sick, you're diseased, you have a problem, you're an outcast. Mm. I think we have a lot of fear around how to have a good time without it. And then also the idea that if I don't have this in my life, then that makes me like some sort of outcast or a person with a problem that gives me this label, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read a book recently. It's called, um, how to quit like a woman (laughs) by Hollywood. Yeah. Good. So that's a a tidbit for our listeners. If you're, uh, looking to read a book about, you know, something again, other than AA that could potentially be a, a path for you for, um, sobriety. But one of the things she talks about in that book is big tobacco and versus big alcohol and how they're actually incredibly linked. Um, and big, big alcohol basically took everything that they could learn from big tobacco and, and uses it in marketing. And I just found that fascinating and really upsetting at the same time, you know, because I think most people nowadays are very much like, you know, smoking is bad. You look at people who smoke with kind of a sense of like pity almost, right? It's like, you, you know, come on, give that up. Yeah. Whereas, it's like they know better. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and even she, she talks a little bit about uh, with drugs too. I mean, people who have uh, drug problems, although there's definitely still stigmas around that as well. There's more of an idea around like blaming the drug versus blaming the person for the addiction. Whereas I feel like alcohol is still behind with that, where it's the person's problem that this addictive product is causing them to be a wreck or a mess. Yeah, totally. Well, I love the whole concept in that book and that more and more people are starting to uncover now, which is that, you know, alcohol is not harmless for anyone. Even if you have quote unquote, a normal relationship with alcohol, it doesn't come totally innocent. You know, even if you have quote unquote, a normal relationship with alcohol, um, it still comes with this subtle um, harm, you know, Mm. that the marketing companies don't want you to know about because it's making them money to sell it to you. So yeah, it's like, it's a normalized drug. It's more lethal than a lot of other drugs that are illegal, but we've accepted it as normal. So we have to place blame on the person instead of the actual addictive substance. Yeah. And it it really, I guess, lends itself to the same kind of concept of like why people are scared to go to therapy sometimes. It's like they don't want to look at the greater issue that's going on underneath the surface because that's really scary. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. we, we attach as human beings, we attach meaning to almost everything in life. And so when we have to attach like scary meanings to things about ourselves, um, that can be really overwhelming and sometimes crushing. Yeah. So in thinking about some another theme that I feel like a lot of people could resonate with, I feel like the idea of being fine on paper is one that a lot of people use to maybe rationalize their uh, relationship with alcohol and or drugs or whatever other addictive substances or um, tendencies. And I just think that's a really hard thing to have self-awareness around, right? Where you're, you feel like everything's fine, right? You haven't necessarily like, to your point, hit the the rock bottom yet or, or whatever, but there's something underlying that you're kind of like, oh, this is, 
this is an issue. So I know that that's something that you felt like you were fine on paper for a long time. So can you just talk about the shift in thinking like, okay, actually this is a problem when you started to think about that and, and what that felt like when you had to kind of come to that realization? Yeah, sure. So I was always what I consider to be pretty high functioning, even at the worst of my drinking. I've always been really ambitious and hardworking. So, you know, I was holding a job in a managerial position. I was also running my own business, doing photography and videography. And I was helping my husband with his business and, you know, having friends doing the things, still trying to go outside sometimes and doing yoga. So yeah, on the surface, like everything looked fine. I was kind of a whirlwind. I was like very busy and all over the place. And drinking was definitely a coping mechanism to help with some of that, you know, feeling of overwhelm from just trying to do all the things and trying to look like I had everything together. And also I think with alcohol, there's definitely a confirmation bias aspect, you know, so I worked in the restaurant industry and in bars for a long time and breweries. And my husband was a chef. So in that field, there's definitely a tendency for people to be, you know, like drinking, going out after every shift and you hang out with people who have similar habits to you. So that creates this feeling of like, well, I'm fine because all these other people seem fine. Mm -hmm. We're all acting this way. So it must be okay. <laughs> and then the thing that, you know, like really just started to wear at me was that I wasn't fine because like other people I think would go home and I would continue to drink until the bars closed mm. or I would go home and drink more or I would go home and fight with my husband because I was in a blackout. You know, it was like what your friends see in order for your friends to tell you you're you're fine is not the full picture often. So for me, really, you know, the behavior that I presented to other people seemed fine, but it was only the people who were really, really close to me in my inner circle that saw like the full picture of where those nights would lead. And I think also just having this feeling of like, I have to be fully honest with someone. I have to out myself in order to actually make a change. That was a big part of it for me. My last night of drinking led to me getting in trouble with my job. And in the long run, that actually helped because in order for me to like remedy that situation, I had to fully open up and be honest about what had happened. And I had to apologize and I had to tell them like, I will not be drinking anymore. And that brought with it that accountability to actually live up to that statement. Yeah. I feel like that's such a helpful tool, just telling people what you're totally to do. even even outside yeah. of sobriety too like when you have a new project or something that you're trying to do or like a new goal I tell as many people as I can because I'm like okay you can't back out now because you don't want to be the person who keeps saying they're going to do that thing and then doesn't do it <laughs> yeah exactly I really pride myself on sticking to those things that I say I'm going to do especially nowadays it wasn't always that way so I definitely recommend if you have this intention of giving up alcohol to tell at least a few people who you know will be supportive and trustworthy and also, you know, brush you off if you stumble and, you know, just be honest with your journey. 
what does support look like for you when you're thinking of people in your circle and your relationships? Like how does that manifest itself? Well, it's changed and evolved over the past four years for sure. At first I did go to AA because I literally didn't know what else to do. You know, I had tried the thing of like quitting on my own. And luckily I had a longtime friend who got sober about a year before I did. And so I was able to turn to her and ask her like what meetings to go to. And then I did it. It was like the hardest thing I ever did, probably <laughs> like walking into those rooms. And it's hard and awkward and feels kind of icky and terrible. But then eventually you just start to meet new people and realize that some of these people have like really happy, fulfilling lives without alcohol. And then you become friends with them. And then it's like a whole new world opens up of people who have been through the same thing and are walking a similar path. So I don't go to AA anymore. I do have a lot of friends do, and I need a lot of my best friends on AA or huge recovery. I have not been to AA. And this is like a very interesting thing to me because I, I'm an extrovert. I like thrive on, you know, group activities and connecting with other people. But I am terrified of going. So like for someone like yourself, who it, you said it was really scary. And for someone like me, who is terrified or other people out there, what was it like? What did you have to t- talk to yourself? About? Like, did you have a mantra? You're like, okay, I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. Like, what, how'd you get your foot in the door? Was it your friend coming with you or what, what was the um, way that you got there? Honestly, I feel like just by exhausting all other options and getting to that point of utter hopelessness that I was at is really what got me there. But when it came time to actually go, I made my husband go with me to like first thing I went to and he was not happy about that, but he did willingly go. And I was really awkward and nervous about it for several weeks, I'm sure of going because I'm an introvert and I felt so vulnerable and I just felt like an open wound, you know, like all my coping mechanisms I felt like had been taken away from me, but it was just something inside like this desire to change, like knowing I had to find a different way to live that kept me going back. I think that another thing to note too, is like, there's obviously options beyond AA and that I know when I first started uh, considering not drinking, like that wasn't really obvious to me. And I don't think that's necessarily obvious to a lot of people. So as far as your toolkit goes now, are there any other, you know, recovery programs that you um, subscribe to or utilize? Yeah, good question. I am so grateful that there's so many different options. And I feel like the options are going and become numerous. You know, the more people start talking openly about sobriety and the more this whole sober curious movement grows. I'm super grateful for that. I went to AA because I felt like there wasn't anything else. I didn't know what else to do. And slowly I became aware that there were some other things out there and I kind of drifted away from AA. So I did go to refuge recovery for a while when I moved to Arizona and that's a Buddhist based recovery group. So it's based on the principles of like mindfulness and compassion Mm -hmm. and the meetings include meditation and, you know, it's just like a very different approach and I've really benefited from that. And, you know, you can find nowadays, I think yoga for recovery classes in a lot of 
different places, which are awesome. My yoga practice was just super helpful to me um, after I first got sober and it continues to this day. So just diving more into that. And really, I think the number one thing that helps me now is just having a supportive community. So I don't really like go to meetings about sobriety very often, but a lot of my good friends are sober and in recovery and, you know, just having their support means the world. I think too, it's becoming more um, out in the open, which is the goal of this podcast as well. But I think that there's so many groups like cropping up, even like Facebook groups, honestly, about sobriety in different local areas. I've definitely seen some in Colorado, at least. Um, I'm sure there's some in, in Arizona as well. And I think that that's really beautiful. And I hope that that can continue because to your point, I mean, you said you had a good friend that had already gone sober and that was really crucial for you. And just to have the one person that you can, you know, bounce ideas off of or talk to about it, I think is just incredibly invaluable. Yeah, definitely. And the online communities are great as well. I actually moved to Asia when I was one year sober they relied on like Facebook groups and the sober community on Instagram for support through that time. So it's oh. amazing. Just, you know, look online for these groups and you'll find people sharing in those spaces to really going to in-person meetings. And I just think it's whatever works for you. So talk a little bit about Asia. Yeah. I want to hear about that. I was working and traveling. So, you know, it's different for everyone, but my timeline with early sobriety was fortunately that things started to get better for me pretty quickly um, because I messed up at my job, but I didn't fully lose my job, luckily. Mm. And, you know, I started to just get back to myself and have all this time to look at what I actually wanted from my life. I was living in San Diego at the time and had been there for about five years and I loved it, but I also wanted to travel more and live overseas again. I had lived overseas in my early 20s in the Peace Corps and I just wanted to have a similar experience to that again. So I started just, you know, being open to what opportunities might present themselves and I was uh, managing a backpackers hostel in San Diego and through that I got connected to some people in Bangkok, Thailand who were starting a hostel and needed help because they had no idea what they were doing. That's so, so cool. I was like I'll come over, I'll consult for you and you know, we'll see how this goes. So I started planning to do that and it was, you know, scary and exciting at the same time because my husband and I just packed everything away, left our home of five years and went off to Asia. And, you know, a lot of people were skeptical of me doing that, you know, unfortunately, quite a few people from the AA program, which can sometimes have a mindset of like, you know, stay where you're safe. They were skeptical mm -hmm. decision. I'm not running away. I'm running back to who I really am. And so I worked in Thailand for a while. I ended up working in Sri Lanka for a while and doing my yoga teacher training while there. Yeah, we had a lot of ups and downs while travel working in Asia, but it was a lot of valuable life experience and I'm super glad we did it. One of the things we talked about too is like, you know, there's a lot of uh, doom and gloom around sobriety conversations and addiction. And um, I don't think we talk enough about like 
the beautiful, joyful experiences that happen after one becomes sober or, or uh, goes into recovery. And so what was, do you think the most impactful like memory from that time in Asia that was just purely joyful? I've got to say yoga teacher training in Sri Lanka and this beautiful place with amazing people because I had been practicing yoga for quite a while and I actually started before I got sober. And, you know, I used to go to like hot yoga class when I was hungover and try to sweat it out and stuff. And I, I always like looked at my yoga teachers in that time as these people who were just like on another level that, you know, I would never be at. They were like so Zen and so enlightened. And, you know, like I, I put them up on this pedestal and I remember back in those days, once one of my teachers asked me if I was planning to do teacher training. And I was just so taken aback at that time. I was like, why would she asked me, why would she think that I could ever be a yoga teacher? And then in a couple years later, I'm in Sri Lanka, just signing for a teacher training. And it was a very like full, full, blissful experience of just feeling like I was actually living up to my full potential when honestly, I wasn't doing that for many years throughout my drinking. I think that's beautiful that you had a moment of, you, you didn't even maybe consider yoga teacher training and just someone believed in you and saw your potential and was like, why aren't you doing this? And it just makes all the difference when people just have it. Sometimes it can be totally innocuous, you know, and just like a throwaway sentence. And you're like, uh, maybe I could do that. <laughs> right. Totally. Because I laughed at it at the time and brushed it off, but also I never forgot it. So it was always there in the back of my mind. And I mean, I think that's what I was doing throughout several of the years where I was drinking was just kind of like numbing myself to my own potential Mm. and accepting this life that was less than I actually was capable of. And then once you take away that, you know, numbing agent and massive time waster that is alcohol, all these opportunities just kind of blossom in front of you. And it's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that, of course, you're working at a backpackers hostel, but you just happen to meet the right people at the right time who then are like, yeah, come on over to Bangkok. (laughs) Well, yeah, you to just do this, but over there. (laughs) It was magical. It was so perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I often think about you know, all the good things in my life. I don't know if you think about this sometimes too, like uh, meeting your partner or like for me, I have a very precious dog that I'm obsessed with. And so just like all the little things that could have gone wrong in order for me to not meet that person or have that dog or have that job or whatever it is. I mean, there's, there's something else going on out there that not to be too woo woo, but there's something happening. No, I agree with you. I totally believe that. I kind of like to look back at the past few years and see the path that I've been on. And it kind of reminds me of like the breadcrumbs, like following this trail of crumbs that doesn't make sense to you at the time when you're in it. But then you look back and you can see all of the reasons why you had to have those experiences and those random jobs and how it all fits together to make this piece, like make this puzzle that is your life or (laughs) however you want to see it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
When you're thinking about themes for the past four years, like have you kind of categorized, you know, year one was this, year two was this, year three, year four. Have you like thought of maybe some main themes for those particular years of sobriety? Um, I have actually, <laughs> if I can <laughs> I remember that. you might have. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, the first year was just all about learning to survive without alcohol or mm-hmm other drugs or other numbing agents. And it's kind of like getting yourself out of survival mode in the first year. It's like learning how to socialize again, learning which people you actually need in your life and which people are just your party friends, learning how to, you know, cope with work and stress and all of these things. And then starting to think of the bigger picture again. Yeah. For me, the first year was really about like breaking it down, getting back to basics and then slowly building up to like what I wanted, which was to move to Thailand, it turned out. And the second year for me was kind of peeling back another layer of looking at the past and looking at um, some old family dynamics, trying to sort of sort it out for myself in my own head. Like, why did I become a person with addiction? I'm not saying that everyone has to go back in time and figure all that stuff out. But for me, I've always been someone who really likes to study people and analyze things. Um, So it was helpful for me to like, look at some of that stuff and bring it in to give myself more understanding of, you know, how this happened in my life and how I Mm. grow from it. So that was a big year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a casual Um, peeling back all the layers. (laughs) Right. And not all at once. Like, it's definitely still happening. Um, And let's see, I'm not sure about three right now, but the past year has definitely been about, um, like, anxiety and workaholism. Those are things that have been in my life, you know, for a long time and I just wasn't really ready to like address them until this year. So I've been working on that. In what ways are you working on your workaholism? I've, I'm an entrepreneur. So that brings with it a lot of challenges. You know, always like being on or on call whenever there's people staying here, you know, there's an ending to do list. There's always something that we could be working on to make this place better or, you know, plan another yoga retreat or do that's hard to find that time for yourself. And you really have to prioritize time not working. Also in 2020, you know, coronavirus. (laughs) Oh yeah. That thing we had. Yeah. (laughs) We had no idea back in February or March or whenever it was when this first started, you know, what this year would you know, typical anxious type A freak out mode where I just like yes to any sort of work opportunity that came my way, be it like freelance or part and whatever can do on my computer. Like, yes, I'll do everything to make sure that we are stable and we are safe. And, you know, luckily for us, people still love to go camping and um, 2020 has been really good for our business, but I just hit such a point of burnout and overwhelm Mm. that I had to let a lot of those things go. And I've just been really faced with the fact like, yes, I'm sober. Yes, I have progress, but I am still really bad sitting with self and being quiet and still and not doing a million things an hour. So I'm working on that. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's such a good point though, too. And I, I think that's really impactful what you said about, I wasn't ready to look at that yet when I went sober from alcohol and drugs. And that's really important to, to understand because just because you stop drinking doesn't mean you, every problem that you have goes away. A lot of them get better. <laughs> right. But I think yeah. that that's a good reminder that there will be pieces of yourself and you don't have to work at them, work on them all at the same time. That would be so overwhelming to do all that at the same time, you know? Yeah, totally. Don't overwhelm yourself. If you're just quitting drinking, like eat all the chocolate, drink all the coffee, whatever you need to do, like take it slow. <laughs> um, yeah. And for me, it's always pretty intuitively just been revealed what the next thing is to work on. So I, I look at it now as like, yes, I'm sober, but there are still other things and habits and activities I use in order to not feel my own feelings. Mm -hmm. And being overly busy with work is definitely one of them. You know, one other thing that I feel like sobriety really brings to the forefront just because it's almost natural when you start to, you know, go to bars or go to social gatherings after you stop drinking and you set a clear boundary because someone says, Hey, do you want a beer or do you want this? Do you want that? And you say, no, I'm good. I don't drink or whatever your response is. It naturally makes you set boundaries with other people, with situations, et cetera. So how did sobriety help you to create boundaries with your relationships, with your partner or with your friendships or family even? It definitely just gives you that practice of how to honor yourself in challenging situations like being at bars, like at weddings or parties or whatever. And, you know, eventually you start to get through those situations and it starts to become a little bit easier to say no to the drink or to tell someone you're sober or however you decide to do it. So it's like strengthening that boundary muscle every time you have to do that. For me, hardest part was with my partner because when I got sober, he did still drink. And he's now sober, but his um, sobriety date is about two years after mine. So it took mm. a while. And through that time, I relationship, but more independent within that relationship because we lost a lot of common ground. You know, I wasn't into like going to the breweries and bars anymore. I wanted to be outside hiking or be getting up early to, you know, go surf or whatever. Mm. And we, we just stopped doing everything together. And we kind of started having more of more separate time with our own friends or our own activities. And that was hard. But in the end, I think it was really healthy. And now that we're both sober, I think we have pretty good balance in our relationship where there's a lot of things we enjoy doing together, but we also appreciate and understand the value in like me going off to do things with my girls and him going off to like rock climb with his guy friends or whatever. And like then being able to come back together and talk about it, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's good to, it's good to experience independence and actually look at what you want to do instead of just doing what you've always done or doing what everyone else wants to do. I love that you guys have separate activities too. I mean, I feel like that's so incredibly important for sanity and also for your relationship because it can feel really suffocating, right? To like be together all the time and not have any sort of like your own thing that you have on your own. Right. Yeah. And when we were both still drinking, we really did everything together. Like we had all the same friends and right. we would, you know, go to the same bars and parties and we were 
very together. And I think that that disconnect of that two year time frame when I was sober and he wasn't, it just really helped us both learn to appreciate having those separate activities and like mm. not having to be together and codependent all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and also I love that the coming back together and talking about it. I call that the debrief with my partner. It's like one of my favorite parts of our partnership. I'm like, Oh, and then this happened, you know, and you get to come together and kind of share these experiences with someone who like truly knows you, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. And like, I'm so happy for him when he gets to go and like rock climb with people who are on his level because I'm not. And then, you know, (laughs) I'll go like (laughs) run up a mountain with my friends and he'll be like, you're crazy, but I'm proud of you. You know, (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) I love that. We are very similar in that in that way. (laughs) Yeah, sounds Uh, like it. So you told me a story about your your friend who was sober before you um, bringing you on your first backpacking trip um, and how crucial that was for your beginning of your sobriety. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, where you went and and what you did and, you know, why it was so important for you? Sure. I will never forget that trip. It was so good. So I, you know, had almost three months sober. So it was still dominating, like pretty much all my thoughts, I feel like were centered around like this new way of living and, you know, recovery and doing the steps and all this stuff. And it, it just takes over your brain for a little while. And it feels like it will be that way forever, but it won't, at least in my experience. And so I wanted to go do something with my friend who had over a year sober and she's very outdoorsy and an avid hiker and backpacker. And this was really when I was starting to like test my wings of being more independent and doing things without my partner. So I had some time off and I asked her if she wanted to go on a backpacking trip. And of course she did. And then she like planned everything because I had never... Um, been on a backpacking trip like without a guide before and we went to Sequoia National Park in November which I wouldn't necessarily recommend it happened to be (laughs) freezing that year in November but you know she just picked this awesome trail out into the backcountry to a beautiful spot and um, we spent a couple nights out there got to just hike and talk and debrief and you know she reassured me so much on that trip that just everything would be okay. Um, Cause I had about three months and she had over a year at this point sober. And, you know, so she had been through what I was going through and it was just a wonderful experience of feeling the sisterhood and shared experience and also getting out into nature and witnessing this beauty. And just, it was something I never would have done if I had still been drinking. Like, Mm-hmm. I would never have, you know, hiked 11 miles out into the back country for two nights, you know, and been sober the whole time and yeah, not bring a flask. That, yeah, yeah I, exactly. Like I never would have done it that way, but it was just such a beautiful experience that made me feel like some of my power was coming back and some of my confidence was coming back on that trip. And I, you know, I just felt like, okay, life is going to be all right. And the world is a beautiful place and I can explore it with a clear mind. And she really helped me see the beauty in that. Oh, that's really beautiful. I love that trip still. (laughs) (laughs) So 
since then, I know your relationship with hiking has evolved and grown and done all kinds of things. So what is it like now? You know, what are some other uh, major memories, I guess, that you have in your sobriety with hiking and backpacking and camping? Yeah, I love hiking and backpacking. (laughs) It's been so wonderful to just explore new places and get out there. And it gives me time to process, I think, because hiking is just walking nice and slow and steady, sometimes carrying a lot of stuff and gives you time to actually process through all those thoughts that for me are sometimes racing in really fast. So having that time out in nature to just process and figure myself out a little bit is really invaluable. And early in sobriety, it just was the one thing that made me feel powerful and confident. And it made me feel alive again, you know, Mm. comparing like my old life of being tipsy in a dark bar at midnight to like being out in nature in a wild place, watching the sunrise with a backpack on my back. Like it was just incomparable. Like Mm -hmm. that difference was so stark to me and I loved it. (laughs) Um, So I felt empowered and alive again. And, you know, the endorphin high is real that, (laughs) that high from moving your body and being out in nature. I highly recommend it. That first year of sobriety, I did the Trans Catalina Trail with my husband, Mm. actually. So that was really awesome. And then we had been trying to hike Mount Whitney for the past couple of years, but couldn't ever get the permits sorted out. And lo and behold, thanks to the magic of the universe, (laughs) we ended up getting Whitney permits that had a summit on my one-year sober anniversary. (gasps) So... So what was that experience like when you got to the top of Mount Whitney and you like overcame obviously this physical feat, but then, you know, I'm I'm imagining a lot of emotions wrapped up in that as well when you get to the top. Yeah, it was incredible. I just couldn't stop smiling. I was just like so proud of myself and feeling on top of the world, literally and emotionally. (laughs) And this was like right after we packed up all our stuff and we're about to move to Thailand also. So it was on my sober anniversary in the midst of this big transition. And I just felt like a badass and I was just (laughs) super grateful that I got to have that experience. So it was incredible. Yeah. Wow. That seems really cathartic. It was for sure. Beautiful. And so I'm thinking about just what's next for you or what's on the horizon or what's, what you've been up to lately. And I think I saw that you just did the rim to rim. Is that right? Yeah. I just did my first rim to rim and that's awesome. (gasps) That is like on my book. So for people don't, who don't know, maybe explain what that is. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. So there's so many trails in the Grand Canyon on either side. And I highly recommend just getting into the canyons somehow whenever you visit. (laughs) Be prepared, of course. Bring a lot of water. Rim to rim is basically hiking from one side to the other. So we hiked from the north rim down to the river and back up the south rim. And you can do it as a backpacking trip with, you know, spending nights along the way. We did it in a day because we're kind of crazy, but (laughs) it was super fun and just gorgeous. You know, I love the canyon. It's a special place. 
So as part of the uh, glamping that you guys do, do, do you take folks in there for, you know, trips or day trips and things like that? We do. Yeah. We take folks um, usually on just short day hikes where we'll hike down a couple miles into the canyon and then hike back up. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually just had our first group of people request that they want to come back next year. They want us to take them on rim to rim, the whole thing. Okay. So we'll have to see. Okay. You can come. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As long as we get the permits, crossing my fingers for that. Um, So it seems like the interest is there for people wanting to do this. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel like an experienced Grand Canyon hiker. So I'm always happy (laughs) to take people down there and help them get that different perspective from inside. So yeah, we do do that and are hoping to do that more and more. Well, cool. So what is on the horizon for you? I mean, not to make you go through a list because I I know the workaholic thing, like I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to force a list on you, but you know, what, what are you excited about? What are you stoked on that's coming up for you? Lots of things. First of all, on the workaholic note, I'm stoked for some time off. So our season for our vacation rental property will be ending next month once it starts to get nice and cold and snowy. So we're going to finish the van, travel in our van a little bit. And then depending on the COVID situation, I'm crossing my fingers to be able to go to do another advanced yoga teacher training in Costa Rica this winter. Oh my gosh. So that's hopefully amazing. that will work <laughs> out. I'm like, I'm understanding that the situation could change, but as of right now, yeah. we are allowed to go. So we'll see. And then off season, just taking more time to travel, climb and explore. I've been running and hiking a lot and not climbing very much. So I'm going to try and see if I can get back into the climbing stoke a little bit and get stronger. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. My husband loves it. I'm sure he'll make me do some hard things. And (laughs) we also do yoga and adventure retreats in different places. Mm. So have one in Joshua Tree coming up in just a couple weeks. And then that side of the business has also been, of course, affected by COVID. So (laughs) eventually we'd like to take those overseas and be able to take people to like Thailand and Sri Lanka and some of these places we've come to know and love. I don't know when that will happen with the current world situation, but I've kind of been learning to just be patient and trust that when the time is right, it will be able to happen. So I'm just really stoked on like, you know, helping other people explore yoga and nature and, you know, get in touch with themselves a little bit more. Love it. For someone who's going through their version of addiction or questioning their lifestyle at all, what would be the first piece of advice that you would give to them? I would say to listen to your intuition. And if you have any tiny soft voice that is questioning or telling you that life could be different, life could be better Then the answer is yes, it could be. Listen to that voice. And it requires a lot of courage and strength and willingness to try a new way of living, but it's so, so worth it. So just take that first step, listen to that voice, join us over here on this side that's being brave and living with clear eyes and questioning the way things have always been. It's, it's nice over here. It's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So where can people connect with you if they want to, you know, connect on, on the business front or on a more personal front? 
Yeah. So I am on Instagram and Facebook as Bigger Life Adventures. That's the name of my yoga and adventure retreat brand. And then also on Instagram as Grand Canyon Glamping. If you just want to come and stay in a yurt or tiny house and be off the grid and hang out with us. Fine. I'm coming. All right. Yay. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Carrie, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Hey, listener, you made it. You made it to the end of the episode. So congrats on that. Hey, I know there were some technical difficulties in this conversation. So really appreciating you sticking with us and listening and and learning, hopefully, from Carrie and all of her wisdom. A couple of things that really stood out to me today in the conversation with Carrie, the idea of listening to the voice in your head. What a freaking concept, you know? I mean, how many times have we had a gut feeling, an intuition about something, you know, whether it be just a small scenario or creating a really specific boundary with someone or just someone asking us to do something and we just don't want to do it and we just give in anyways. I mean, how many times have I done that? I can't even tell you. And just not honoring how I'm feeling. My body's trying to tell me something and I just don't honor it and and do something that I don't want to do, right? And I think that Carrie had a great reminder at the end there of just listening to that intuition. If you have that soft voice telling you that life could be different, listen to it. The other thing that Carrie talked about earlier on in the episode that I really found very pointed is Of course, alcohol, drugs, any other substances like them are numbing your potential. They are numbing what you could be doing in your life. Oh my gosh, that really stuck with me because it's true. Of course, we know that alcohol, drugs, other addictive tendencies are numbing agents overall. But did we really think about how they're numbing our own potential for a life that we could create? full of joy and happiness and contentment. That really stuck with me, you know, not just with alcohol, but then also with other self-sabotaging behaviors. You know, how many times have we done things? And I say we, because you guys know I've done these things, right? So I'm assuming that other people out there have done them as well. How many times have I just done self-sabotaging behaviors because I know it'll be easier than doing the hard thing? I can give you guys an example, one that really bugs me all the time. I want to be a writer. I want to be a better writer. I want to put my work out there into the world, but I know that I need big chunks of time that are uninterrupted in order to really dig in and get better at the craft and and transparently just write in general, have the time to do that. But I stack my calendar over and over and over again. I stack my calendar with things that get in the way of me having those big blocks of time. And I do it purposefully, even if it's subconsciously, right? I'm self-sabotaging myself. Well, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. So I just can never get better at the thing. And therefore I'm numbing my potential. I'm not doing the hard work of digging in and getting better at writing. I'm self-sabotaging. And hey, I'm using you guys to stay a little bit more accountable on it. So thanks for that. Really appreciate it. I really hope you got a lot from the conversation with Carrie today. 
I think she's fantastic. I certainly want her to lead me in to the Grand Canyon. And I hope that you'll keep up with her as well. In the show notes, you'll see some of the books that we talked about today in our conversation. And again, really appreciate you being here. If you want to support the show, please join us on our Facebook group, you know, follow us on Instagram. But the most helpful thing that you can do at this juncture in the show is write us a review on iTunes. So if you do that, really appreciate you. And please always feel free to reach out. We're on Instagram, Nature Untold Podcast. And my personal Instagram is E underscore Halls, H-O-L-L-Z. Try to be cool, creating a nickname for myself, uh, Emily Holland. So catch me there. And uh, till next time. <laughs>